Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO Gamble. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. In today's episode, we'll have a discussion on the recent Log4j, aka the Log4 shell vulnerability, what it is and what we as cybersecurity professionals can do to respond quickly and effectively. And my guest today is a renowned threat researcher and security leader for a NASDAQ 100 company, Mr. Deepan Desai, the global CISO and head of security research at Zscaler. Deepin will share with us his insights into what has been described as one of the worst vulnerabilities of the year, Log4j, which has impacted millions of systems worldwide and has forced security and IT professionals to set aside other critical work simply to be able to respond. Deepin, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you've had a very, very busy last week. Thank you, Sean, for having me over. It seems that the closer and closer we get to December, we simply end up with a brand new massive vulnerability at the end of the year. Right. Yeah, no, that, that's funny you said that. Last year, during this time, we were all dealing with SolarWinds supply chain attack response. And this year we have a Log4j remote code execution vulnerability. So look, vulnerability disclosures are coincidental in terms of timing, but in general, there is a spike in malicious activity around this time frame as cyber criminals are trying to take advantage of the holidays. And when you have a vulnerability disclosure like Log4j, it becomes icing on cake for them because now they have a huge attack surface that they can leverage in targeting some of the exposed assets. That makes a lot of sense if you really pull it back from the perspective of the attacker. I also sometimes wonder if all the various security researchers out in the world are simply stuck with a backlog of various research activities that they finally got to. I was fortunate to watch your webinar that you gave yesterday, where you and your team demonstrated an actual functional proof of concept exploit. I thought it was pretty damn cool, simply looking at it and saying, wow, that didn't take very much to get that up and running and be able to get a full root shell. What about the specific vulnerability allows such a fully realized attack to happen? Right. So uh, just just a quick summary. It's it's basically a full CVSS 10 score critical severity vulnerability uh, that allows a remote attacker, even without any kind of authentication, to perform remote code execution. The the thing is fairly trivial to exploit, right? As you saw on the webinar demo as well, it doesn't take a lot of effort for an attacker to perform this attack, and not just on one asset, but several assets at the same time, right? And once the attacker is able to successfully exploit this issue, uh, they can take full control of the asset, right? So they can download arbitrary payloads, they could uh, scan the environment, they could perform lateral propagation. And in many of the cases, what we're seeing is they're able to do everything just by staying in the memory. So non- nothing gets written on the disk. Uh, it's running in the context of the Java process itself on the vulnerable system. Now, the reason this thing is so big is the number of applications and cloud services that are utilizing 
either this library directly or indirectly, right? So one of the number that the team pulled out, there are more than 1,800 major repositories that have dependencies on Apache Log4j library. Right? That's a huge attack surface uh, for the criminals. Um, and uh, as you pointed out, yes, in the attacks that we have seen till now, it's mostly been crimeware, like crypto miners, ransomwares, rats, or, or credential stealing attempts. But uh, you know, it's only a matter of time before we see more targeted uh, attacks involving Southern Asian state groups as well. Regarding the never-ending seeming amount of vulnerabilities that we have to deal with, I was talking with a good friend of mine, a CISO of a really, really big organization, uh, talking hundreds of thousands of end users. And he said to me, you know, is there ever going to be a time where this just isn't a thing? And then I said to him, well, what do you mean? We've been dealing with this kind of thing for a very long time as security practitioners. And he said, you know what, Sean, these days, it feels like Patch Tuesday is every day. And do you think that there's ever going to be a place in time where we're not dealing with these types of things at the scale that we're dealing with them? You know, I, I remember back in the 1990s, one of the things that uh, was really controversial was the timing and the release of particular CVEs. And this is before Patch Tuesday even existed. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, wow, that seems like a really cool method to release things en masse. And there was a huge amount of blowback from the industry where folks were saying, this doesn't seem to make a ton of sense. This seems like all we're doing is enabling cyber criminals. Do you think that we'll ever get to a point where we find a better way of being able to release and or manage a lot of these known exploits and or vulnerabilities? I, I have heard talks uh, about not making public, public disclosures of uh, such uh, security issues or even uh, you know, discussions about finding an alternate, more secure way of uh, distributing uh, some of this material. And I honestly disagree with it because, look, on the day any software patch is released, whether it's Apache, Microsoft, anything that is of interest uh, to the cyber criminals, uh, I always say this, like the day the patch gets released, there are two groups of researchers that are actively working on those patch, doing patch diffing, trying to identify specific security issues that were fixed from the prior version. Now, the goal for the good guys is obviously to develop protection for the organizations that are lagging behind in their patching cadence. But the goal for the bad guys is to develop those exploits, right? And to start taking advantage of that situation and, uh, and achieve compromise before the asset is patched. So now imagine a scenario where you stop publishing these advisories or you're, you're sending it through a different mechanism, which is not broadly adopted, right? Uh, what will essentially happen is the two groups that I just mentioned will still do their job as soon as the patch is released. They will find out looking at the code and looking at the difference in the patches, what the issue is, and they will develop those detections as well as exploit. But the organizations globally will fail to prioritize patching for a critical issue like, say, Log4j, because you know, it just gets lost and you essentially make this an even bigger issue. So Microsoft, as you mentioned, has done a very great job with patched Tuesdays. It's fairly organized. And 
they leveraged that for packaging all the fixes that were identified and disclosed in a responsible fashion. There are still out-of-band patches that Microsoft releases when an in-the-while exploitation attempt gets discovered for a critical flaw. So it's not unusual even for Microsoft to do those out-of-band updates. So my response to that question is, uh, I mean, the, the current method is is important. It gives visibility to all the organizations to prioritize their, their response effort. If you make it go dark, you're just making the issue even bigger. So I think what I'm hearing you say is the old, uh, you know, security through obscurity is not really a strategy, right? Yeah, instead, you should be honestly focusing your efforts on uh, moving towards more secure architecture, right? Uh, yes, protections, patching, all of those are important, but uh, I, I'm, to all the CISOs that I speak with, I mean, many, if not all, have already embarked on the journey towards adopting zero trust architecture, right? So how do you reduce that attack surface? How are you better uh, protected against these type of zero-day attacks? One of the things that we were talking about a little bit earlier reminded me of an issue that has been longstanding, and it really it's more of a debate between open source versus closed source technology. And I, I recall you making a comment that sometimes these technologies, open source in particular, do not always have the appropriate resources to get the level of scrutiny that is required. D did I hear you right on that? Yes, yes, that is that is correct. Uh, and that is where, you know, you need to have proper safeguards in place. So uh, let's take the example of Log4j itself. Now, obviously, it's a very popular uh, uh, library and it is part of Apache and uh, many other dependencies, as we talked about. But what you're going to see is the level of scrutiny that library is going to get uh, ever since this flaw uh, has come to public light is going to be enormous, right? So you already saw yet another issue being discovered in the patch that was released that uh, certain configurations were susceptible to DOS attack. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see more issues getting discovered as it goes through uh, all of the scrutiny it's getting uh, as a result of these issues. So you need to have a plan in place where you're reducing the exposure from using these third-party libraries, right? Uh, uh, look at your supply chain security. What what will it mean if one of the assets that's running that third-party library were to get compromised, right? Do you have uh, proper controls in place to contain that uh, infection? Do you have proper controls in place to alert you and are you able to respond in a timely fashion, whether it's patching it, whether it's implementing some mitigations uh, around that? So you mentioned patching. And obviously, in many of these situations, the most immediate thing that technologists, security practitioners can do is execute on getting the systems up to date. But as you noted, uh, in some cases, that doesn't doesn't always immediately help or simply shifts it to a slightly different problem, whether that's a new vulnerability or uh, simply removing capabilities or functionality that perhaps enabled the vulnerability to occur in the first place. Now, if I'm thinking about all of these impacts and process challenges and everything that comes with it, it seems to me that there needs to be a heck of a lot more that can be done by security teams to really further contain 
the impact of these vulnerabilities. And you mentioned architecture as one of them. Yeah, that's that's a good point. So from the prevention perspective, I would advise organizations to look at four broad categories. And I call these, uh, you know, fundamental tenets of uh, implementing zero trust architecture. The number one tenant is you need to eliminate your external attack surface. Right? The goal over here is any asset or server that should not be exposed to the internet should be made invisible. And you could use technologies like Zscaler Private Access to make that happen. So what Zscaler Private Access, for instance, does is it, it will create an inside-out connection from your application environment to Zscaler Cloud. Your users connect to Zscaler Cloud. We will authenticate the user and only the users that are authorized to connect to an application are allowed to connect to that application. For everyone else, even in that same company, that application doesn't exist, right? So by doing that, what you did, just did is uh, you reduce your exposure significantly because now even if you're behind your patching cadence, uh, when a zero-day vulnerability gets discovered or a patch gets released, uh, it's not exposed to the external world where the attackers are trying to uh, attack that asset, right? Uh, so in case of Log4j as well, when I'm talking to uh, some of these organizations, my guidance has been any business critical application that should not be facing internet, you should bring it behind uh, some kind of zero trust architecture to eliminate that external attack surface. The second piece is you need to have proper controls aligned to prevent that initial compromise. Right. So now if your application has to be exposed to the internet, you need to have full inspection with SL inspection enabled for all internet bound traffic, right? In case of log4j, what they're doing is they're, they're sending a specially crafted HTTP request. If your server is vulnerable, the log4j library is making an outbound connection, connecting to the uh, attacker's infrastructure to download that stage two exploit payload and then subsequent malware payloads. If you have proper controls in place, right? You will be able to scan and block those malicious exploit attempts. Uh, I mean, one question that I always uh, ask is, does your server, your business critical server or any web application server have any business to connect to arbitrary destinations on the internet or ports like LDAP or even HTTP, right? You would want to contain the outbound activity to certain trusted sources. So that's where you need to align your security controls. The third tenant, assume that that asset was to get compromised. What is the blast radius, right? The third tenant is prevent lateral threat movement. So you need to have your architecture designed in a way that from that one compromised asset, the attacker is not able to do a lot of damage. Right? There's a difference between one asset being compromised and your entire network getting owned by the adversary, which is uh, going to result in a large scale breach. So have that user to app segmentation, app to app segmentation, proper micro-segmentation strategy, which is uh, an important tenet of the zero-trust architecture as well. Right? So that's the question that you should ask over here as well. If your server running log4j library were to get hit, what else is exposed, right? And when you're doing your response activity, you should assume that that entire environment is contaminated, right? Whatever is reachable from the asset that was vulnerable and was hit uh, should also be examined. One of the things that this really reminds me of is, you remember when everyone was talking about uh, 
the way to control and the only way to control quote unquote blast radius was with layer three, layer four firewall and access control lists. That, that, that used to be the old ways of doing things and you, you can never get it right. It's always uh, cat and mouse, whack-a-mole approach where you will always discover, oh, I forgot this. Let me add that as well, right? And you learn it the hard way. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's really awesome to hear the fact that uh, we've continued to evolve as an industry and, and Zscaler as a company in terms of its ongoing capabilities because I can't remember the number of times I've accidentally configured an access control list in the wrong direction and accidentally downed infrastructures. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so very exciting. And I'm sure any of our network engineers and architects that are listening right now can feel that pain. Don't worry, we're on it. Exactly. And just to round that off, the fourth tenant, which is equally important, right? If 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 the asset that uh, you know you're trying to safeguard has sensitive data, or all the attackers, if they are not after your compute resources uh, for mining cryptocurrency, they are after your data, right? That's what they will uh, make financial benefits out of. So you need to have proper inline data loss prevention controls as well uh, with SSL inspection. So you're able to block, uh, you know, any kind of data exfiltration attempts from your environment. So to summarize, eliminate attack surface, prevent compromise, prevent lateral threat movement, and then prevent data exfiltration. Final question, Deepin, and again, thank you so much for taking your time. I know you've been very busy helping a lot of organizations really navigate this, and in addition to also ensuring that Zscaler continues to be the most secure cloud architecture and service that's in the industry. I'm really curious, though, when we think about all of the things we're talking about, we've talked about things that happened about uh, 20-some years ago in terms of overall this a cyclical problem. Are we ever going to get ahead of it? I mean, sometimes it's like Cepheus with the big boulder rolling it up the hill just to have it roll back down. When you look ahead and you see what's in the future, what gets you the most excited in terms of where we're headed as an industry, as a technologist? Do you see the, a bright horizon ahead? Or are we going to be having the same conversation for the next 20 years, similar to the way that it's been over the last 20? <laughs> so there is, there is absolutely hope. Uh, and, you know, most of the organizations have embarked on that uh, zero trust journey. The four tenants that I just described, I mean, you can't have that enabled overnight, right? So it's a journey. That's what I tell uh, organizations that I speak to as well. Every, every tenant or every uh, control that you're able to align, it's a milestone that you're achieving, right? So you're, you're improving your security posture by aligning your controls to each of those and working towards that uh, zero trust uh, architecture. Now, once you do that, you know, you've significantly improved your security posture. Like I said, eliminate external attack surface. Any asset that is now not visible to the outside world no matter which zero-day vulnerability gets discovered, you have reduced your exposure significantly. And only, only um, the, the only other vector that remains is if one of your internal resources is being used to attack that critical application, and you need to have some controls aligned over there as well. Uh, prevent lateral threat movement. Very, very important, right? Uh, if you're able to contain that uh, blast radius, uh, I mean, it's, it's 
it's it's the difference between a full-scale breach versus a single incident that your team can respond and get done. Uh, so the point I'm trying to make is you need to uh, you need to think of this as a journey towards implementing all of those four tenets that I just described. And once you do that, every milestone that you're able to achieve, that boulder is not going to roll back down entirely. I mean, you're stopping it at different levels because you're inherently improving your security posture and you will be in much better situation to safeguard against these attacks. Now, will there be more issues in future? Yes. Obviously, both sides are evolving their uh, tools, tactics, and procedures. So we will always be uh, fighting that battle. But if you have a fundamentally strong architecture in place, then you are in much better situation to respond to those newer attacks as well. I really appreciate what you shared and your hopeful view of the future. I've always said that uh, cybersecurity personnel sometimes get a bad rap. That being that uh, there's a perception in certain circles that we tend to be a little bit negative, a little bit uh, pessimistic about things. But I've always told people, I actually believe that the best cybersecurity professionals, certainly the ones that I admire, are the most forward-looking and optimistic people. And the reason I believe that fundamentally is because only with that optimism and the discomfort of seeing the way things are, does change actually happen. Otherwise, we would simply accept everything the way it is. Thank you so much for joining today's episode of the CISO's Gambit. Thank you, Sean. I really enjoyed it. We appreciate you tuning in to us today to hear from our special guest. And as we're approaching the end of the year, we want to wish all of our listeners a happy holiday, hoping that everyone stays safe. If you enjoyed this episode and gained any new insights from our conversation, please subscribe and leave a review. Every bit of feedback we receive goes into bringing the best quality content. If you'd like to listen to Deepin and his team give an amazing presentation and proof of concept of the Log4j vulnerability, please visit us at zscaler.com and search for Log4j to find the latest information on how organizations are solving for this problem. Thanks for tuning in. Statements by Zscaler podcasters and guests are informational only and should never be construed as legal advice. You should consult with your legal advisor on matters related to you or your business. Zscaler makes no warranties, express, implied, or statutory as to the content of this podcast, and it is provided as is. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2021.